Um, so uh, we're continuing our, our study of, of Luke and how that relates to being sent out. Um, and so today we're going to consider Luke 9. So we're going to look at Luke 9 and we're going we're to look at this contrast between uh, Herod on the one hand and Peter's confession on, on the other. Um, you know, as we think about the Bible, just generally, uh, the Bible's always presenting us with contrasting characters, right? Uh, we think of Cain and Abel, uh, Jacob and Esau, uh, Job over against his friends that are supposed to be his comforters. Uh, we think of Peter and Paul. Uh, we think of Judas as over against the rest of the apostles. And I think this teaches us that we all have a bit of those characters operating in, in us. Um, and I think that that should prompt us uh, to be both hopeful and humble. Um, we need to be more generous uh, to others and perhaps ourselves uh, when we consider our own foibles and, and failings. Um, so the scriptures don't pull any punches in its characterization of human nature. Uh, the Bible is neither naive nor cynical, and uh, neither should we be. Um, but here we have another one of these, these framing, a, a framing of a contrast uh, between two characters that we're going to call Peter's confession and Herod's perplexity. Um, as we know in the Gospels, and uh, uh, throughout a, a, a great deal of the Bible, actually, characterization of individuals is related in terms of the way that we respond to God. In the Gospels, of course, more specifically, those characterizations are related to the way individuals are responding to the person of Christ and who they think he is. Um, in Luke 9, Again, you know, we have this counterpoint between Peter and Herod and their reaction to Jesus and the whole question of his identity. Who do you say that I am uh, is a question that might be the central theme of the, of the Gospels. And uh, it, it's a question that's very much at play in our passage today. And that question always occurs in some sort of, of context. Uh, the Jewish community in first century Palestine was brimming with messianic expectations. Uh, Roman rule was deeply resented, and Jewish nationalism was running high. Uh, the air was charged with a sense of impending change. And it's against that backdrop that Herod is perplexed and Jesus poses this question. So if you, might, if you have your Bibles, um, we might want to look here at Luke uh, chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. So beginning with, with verse 7, we have, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. Of course, Jesus' ministry at this time was generating a lot of excitement. And he was perplexed 
because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, well, I, I beheaded John. Uh, who then is, is uh, this person that we're hearing all these things about? And so Herod tried to see Jesus. Now, I, 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 th I think it should be obvious. Herod was, um, was the son of Herod the Great. It was Herod the Great that uh, massacred all the male children under two in the, in, in, in the vicinity of Bethlehem uh, when Jesus was born. Uh, it was Herod the Great who rebuilt the temple. Um, and so our Herod, the Herod in this passage, is his son. Um, and it was his son who ordered the execution, of course, of, of John the Baptist. Um, he had him beheaded uh, when, um, when John rebuked him over his adultery, over Herod's adultery with his wife. Um, so, uh, you know, we're kind of, uh, needless to say, we're dealing with a kind of a slippery character here. Uh, Herod clearly had interests at, at stake. And so when we read that he wanted to see Jesus, um, we shouldn't take that to be indicative of a, uh, a genuine spiritual seeking after, <laughs> after Jesus. Uh, there, there's, there's just no indication of that. Um, rumors were surrounding Jesus's ministry, and so he was most likely concerned, uh, perhaps, that Jesus was posing a threat uh, to his own power. Uh, Jesus was beginning to be thought of as a herald that was signaling uh, a new national Israel that was going to be independent of, of Roman rule. And so it's likely that Herod probably saw Jesus as this potential rival. Um, and so he was concerned. And so when, he, when we read he sought to see Jesus, um, you know, it's probably likely that he wanted to kind of size Jesus up he wanted to perhaps measure that threat. So, um, when we transition then over to Jesus and then the relationship with his disciples, uh, we have, of course, a, a much different sort of, of dynamic that's going on here. And so let's look, let's transition here to uh, verse 18 in... Uh, in Luke 9. And so we say, once, uh, once when Jesus was praying in private, and disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ, the Son of God. So, when Jesus poses this question to the disciples, it's interesting that they sort of rehearse the same rumors 
about Jesus that Herod himself was aware of. You know, there was, again, there was a lot of messianic expectation that was surrounding Jesus' ministry at this time. And so there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of messianic claims that were, that were being made. And so I think when Jesus asked this question, um, I, I think it may have been deliberately provocative. You know, he was, he, he was trying to provoke the disciples as individuals. I think he wanted to draw them out from simply hiding behind the popular beliefs that were circulating at that time. Uh, he wanted the disciples to be honest with themselves and with Jesus himself. So I, I think what we're seeing here is, is Jesus is desiring them to move from mere belief to conviction. Um, beliefs tend to be merely what we assent to. Convictions, on the other hand, are what we act from. Convictions run deeper than beliefs. And Peter's confession was a conviction on which he was willing to act. Uh, despite, admittedly, despite his foibles and despite his, his later denial. So conviction, if I have a conviction, that's going to entail belief, uh, but beliefs don't necessarily involve convictions. If I have a real conviction that Jesus rose from the dead, that's going to make a difference in the way that I celebrate Easter, you know, as opposed to just marking Easter as a, as a date on the calendar. Um, so it seems that, that Peter here is expressing uh, a true confession. He's expressing true conviction here. And so we might want to pause on this a bit. What, what was it that was driving that conviction on Peter's part? There's no indication, as I read this, that it was the result of Peter trying to garner evidence or Peter trying to construct an argument for himself. Uh, the confession was not a conclusion of some line of reasoning that was going on in Peter's head. Peter was operating according to the spirit, not necessarily according to the brain. Uh, when we read this cognate passage in Matthew, what does it say? Do, do, do you remember that? It says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. So it was, this confession was spirit-induced. So, you know, Peter is not ticking off, I don't think. It's not as if Peter is ticking off Jesus' messianic claims against what he knew about Bible prophecy. Uh, it didn't come from trying to figure out Jesus. Uh, it's indicative of a, of a, of a personal transformation that's taking place in Peter. Um, and I think when we look at Scripture, um, there's really this exciting theme, I think, that really runs through all of Scripture. And that is that personal transformation is not so much a matter of intellect, 
Personal transformation comes in terms of fully perceiving, recognizing, taking it in. As the old King James would say, it comes about through beholding. Um, and there are, there are lots of examples of this that, that run through the Bible. Um, think of the incident of the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. What was going on there? The children of Israel, during the Exodus, were bitten by snakes. So God instructs them to, in faith, look at the bronze serpent that has been raised up. And in consequence of that, something happened, something changed. In consequence of that looking, healing took place. Strangely enough, in, when Jesus has his encounter with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus actually refers back to this, this incident in Numbers. And he relates that to the movement of the Spirit, as the Spirit moves like the wind. Psalm 27, it continues right through. David says, I will see the Lord in the land of the living with the implication of the consequent sense of well-being that that seeing will establish. We see it again in Job 19. Even after my skin is destroyed, I will see him in my flesh. An incredible affirmation of faith. Job seems to be looking forward to a personal resurrection that he's associating with actually seeing. 1 Corinthians 15, we see but a dim reflection, but we will see him face to face, and we will know him as we are known. Colossians 3, when he appears, we will also appear with him in glory. 1 John 3, when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So all of this expresses this beautiful theme that informs, I think, the entire Bible. And it might be expressed like this. To behold the disclosure of the way things really are empowers us to be what we're intended to become. Um, I think we see that operating through the whole body of Scripture. To behold, the, to behold the disclosure of the way things really are empowers us to become what we're intended to be. One more time. <laughs> to behold the disclosure of the way things really are empowers us to become what we're intended to be. So Peter beheld Jesus. He recognized him for who he was and is. And then he was empowered to be a witness to the larger world. Um, we got to remember that it was Peter's uh, vision on the rooftop in the book of Acts that extended that bridge from Jesus as the Jewish Messiah to Jesus as Lord and Savior of the world. Um, 
So what seems to be the case is that personal transformation, personal transformation is not essentially in the head. It's, it, it's not essentially cognitive. Um, we don't think, it's, it's been said that we can't think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. And that is spirit-induced. And, and I think that's true. I mean, uh, th think about it. Um, uh, the attempt to argue my way into a conviction about Jesus' identity, it's a non-starter. If, if I assume that stance, if I'm trying to argue, well, uh, I, have to, I have to assume from the outset that Jesus isn't necessarily the person that he claimed to be. So in doing so, I blind myself and I make myself unable to behold him as he really is. And just think about it. If I was able to argue myself into some belief about Jesus' identity, it would probably remain just a belief. It would probably just be intellectual assent, and I really wouldn't have any conviction about that. So, so arguments and, and evidence... Uh, don't so much cause our convictions, they can deepen them and they can reinforce them, but they don't cause them. That's really a more, that's, that's an issue about being moved by the Spirit. Our convictions are Spirit-induced. Um, now, there is an irony at play here. Uh, we are admonished to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Now, who said that? You remember who's, wh where does that come from? <laughs> it comes from Peter. That, that's, that comes from 1 Peter 3.15. So, so here, the man of action, we associate Peter with being a man of action. We associate Peter with the guy who's inclined to act first and then think later. He's the one that gives us this admonition. Um, so what do, what do we say about that? I think we have to say that nevertheless, it's hope that comes first. It's got to be hope that comes first. And then we have reasons. It's not the other way around. Peter had the hope before he was able to sort out the proper reasons for that hope. So I think we are admonished, uh, we're admonished not so much to be hopeful reasoners as to be reasonable hopers. And I think that's what, that's what Peter was. We develop over time uh, a coherent story of our journey with the Lord that others will find compelling, hopefully. So it's, it, it's not really about so much our, our, our spiritual journey being centered on the life of the mind. The life of the mind is not so much about figuring God out, but it's about relating our experience with God to each other and to the larger world. Now, when we, when we think about Herod, 
Herod was trying to figure Jesus out, right? He was trying to figure Jesus out politically or religiously. Uh, he wasn't trying to follow Jesus. He was trying to figure Jesus out. He wasn't seeking after Jesus. And I think that when we try to figure Jesus out as a condition for following him, we will also be burdened and constrained by our perplexity, just as Herod was. We won't have the ability to see. And Jesus, after all, will always subvert our rational expectations. Uh, in times past, in, in our recent teachings, we've spoken about belonging before believing, extending to people a sense of welcome before we start insisting that they believe in certain ways, you know? Well, I think we have a, an, an analogy here. Um, we should be willing to, to seek Jesus before we necessarily clearly see him and what he's about and what he's about. So, so we have belonging before believing, seeking before clearly seeing. Herod, we might say, was operating on the left side of his brain. Peter was operating on the right side, if you want to put it that way. And, it, you know, it's become common uh, to make a distinction between left and, and, and right brain orientations, right? What is, you know, we, we think of left brain operation. What does that involve? Uh, I think we all, we're all pretty familiar with this, this distinction. The left, it's analytical, right? Sequential, logical. It deconstructs things or unpacks things. It sees things in terms of the parts. The right brain, on the other hand, it's intuitive. It's non-sequential. It's artistic, constructive. It sees things in terms of holes. And I think that Peter's confession is an indication that he was operating on the, on the right, on the right side of things. He was beginning to see Jesus for who he really was. He was beginning to see Jesus uh, as a whole man not just as a liberator, uh, not just as a teacher, not just as a healer, not merely as just a savior of the Jews. Uh, another way we could put it is that he was coming to a point where he was viewing Jesus not as a mere means to some other end. He was viewing Jesus as, as an end in itself. Herod was otherwise. Jesus for Herod, I think we can perhaps safely say, um, was viewing Jesus as a means. Now, of course, we, I mean, we can't, you know, actually get inside Herod's head. But it might have been the case that Herod was maybe hoping he could establish a rapport with Jesus. And that rapport would entrench perhaps Herod's own power. There would be a, a, a certain political benefit in being able to identify himself to Jesus. Um, so I think, in, I think we can safely say that, that Herod was approaching Jesus out of self-interest. Peter was beginning, on the other hand,
to see Jesus as the Son of God in whom everything else rests as its proper end. And at that point, uh, Peter was in a position to be sent. And I think that insight on Peter's part was really kind of coming from the, from the right side there. Peter had a conviction, and that conviction uh, compelled him to be an agent for change. A mere belief tends to, le to leave us unchanged. It's just a dissent. We're not going to experience character transformation. Now, you know, we don't necessarily want to idolize Peter or demonize Herod. Uh, Herod was trying to maintain power. He was trying to maintain the status quo. And, of course, a lot of times we try to do the same thing, right? But any attempt to try to maintain uh, our own self-interest will always lead us to this kind of perverse conservatism in our lives. Uh, we become entrenched in our own self-interest. Um, and when that happens, the horizons of our lives begin to contract, shrink. Uh, we fail to see and respond to opportunities that we have for personal growth, and uh, we, fail to see that we fail to see that in others as well. Right? It's all about hanging on to what we have, usually at the expense of others, and we see others as mere means to other ends. We're certainly not going to project a transformative witness to the community at large. And so when we see ourselves as little bundles of needs and wants, we become preoccupied with ensuring that our expectations are met. And that was, that was Herod's problem. And when that happens, it obscures our vision of ourselves and each other as image bearers. If we can't behold that image, we can't be transformed. And I think that God wants us to act out of this position as bearers of his image. When I stop imagining a God outside of this universe who is attempting to present his face to a world aligned against him, uh, I begin to make progress in my own spiritual journey. Uh, I, I, I think, how do, we, how do we begin to behold? How do we begin to behold? Well, we, we have to stop imagining God as this, this external agent uh, who's not really engaged in, in the world at large. Uh, we have to think incarnationally, in other words. Um, Christ is also in the world, not just outside of it. And all things cohere in him. And his presence in all things makes all things cohere. And so if that's true, we have to be willing to look and behold at our surroundings, at what, at what we're immediately confronted with just in our everyday lives. I look to behold those things that immediately exist around me. So we have to refine our sight, in other words, looking to the simple things. 
and I, I know that that may sound a little bit corny, um, but we may very well have kind of a corny God. Uh, God made the corn, <laughs> and uh, according to Colossians 1, 15 through, through 20, remember that great passage in Colossians, all things cohere in him. Well, corn is corn because corn inheres in him. And that's pretty, and that's, that's, that's pretty corny, you know. So, we have to take the opportunity to be beholders. We take the opportunity to be beholders, because again, if what we're saying is true here, it's by beholding, it's by this recognition, this spirit-induced recognition, that personal transformation will take place. So, for example... Uh, when Eric and Penny invite us to go on a hike and watch the sunset as they did the last week, um, perhaps we should take that sort of invitation a little bit more seriously instead of just sort of an entertaining way to, to spend a, uh, a Sunday afternoon. Penny provided some spiritual direction during that time. And it was, a really, it was a real blessing to be challenged to see Christ um, in those immediate surroundings. And perhaps most importantly, uh, we behold Christ in others. Uh, and that can occur in, in, in many ways. Um, I think for us to realize our position as bearers of Christ's image, we have to realize that that's, that's going to occur relationally. We can't achieve uh, our status as image bearers apart from relationship. So that might mean working shoulder to shoulder uh, with others as helping to plant um, and tend the garden at the Brittingham area here across the street. Um, it might help uh, to help uh, maybe a resident at, at Brittingham lay carpet, uh, as I did uh, several months ago with the Ramakers and the Hunts. Um, so all of these things uh, remind us that we can't, again, we can't realize our status as bearers of God's image apart from our involvement with others, apart from our relationships with others. Um, in relationship, uh, we project a transformative witness as the ones that are truly sent out. Um, we don't displace a community, but we help to redeem what is already there. Uh, you might remember that last week uh, Scott spoke about this experience of being sent out and how that can result uh, sometimes in a certain sense of displacement. We experience this kind of, of, of a certain disorientation. But it puts us, it transports us into a new space in which we have to depend upon God and we're open to the possibilities that, that are around us. When we do that, we see those possibilities expand instead of of just shrinking. 
And so when we're being sent, it's not so much a matter of displacing that community, but it's more a matter of our being displaced. It changes us. It's not just merely a matter of making another group of people believe the way that we do. So again, relationship, context of relationship, is, is where we experience this kind of transformation as we project that witness to others and we experience one another as bearers of God's image. It's in that context in which uh, we grow and we advance in our relationship as image bearers. We're able to act truly out of our own agency as God's witnesses and as God's image bearers. Um, so I think that um, that helps us, hopefully, um, as we want to consider ourselves as the sent out ones uh, into the, the community at large. It doesn't maybe initially so much change that community as it changes us. And I think that characterizes our, our witness uh, at large. We change first, and then only afterwards we worry about changing other people. Our hearts have to change first before we're in a position to project a transformative witness to others. So that's all I have today. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us uh, a little bit here. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to be lights salt and light in a very, very confusing and dynamic world. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us to act as agents in your own image, Lord. And we just, most of all, we want to pray for eyes to see. We want to pray for eyes that help us to behold your presence in all things. We recognize, Lord, that in that beholding, we become transformed as we see you in ourselves and most of all, as we see you in relationship as we relate to one another. Give us those eyes to see, Lord, in the days ahead as we continue our journey with you. Thank you. Amen.